Psalm 131 took me 19.7 seconds to read this psalm. But about 50 years ago, I was born into the body of Christ, and I'm still learning how to have a quiet and composed soul. (laughs) Am I ever going to get there? (laughs) It's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. So in verse 1, David begins with his heart. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. He begins with his heart because this is the very center, the very core of our life, isn't it? Our body is only here for a time. Our body is temporal. Our heart, our soul is eternal. That's the precious part of us that God created. That's the part of us that he cares deeply about. That's the part of us that he teaches, that he nourishes, that he strengthens, that he wants to conform into the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The heart is the very important part of us. And so that's where David starts. My heart is not proud. Before we get to that pride issue, I just want to speak a little bit more about the heart. So turn with me to Psalm 139, just a few pages over, Psalm 139. This is also a Psalm of David. We're not going to go through the whole Psalm, but let me just read the first six verses for you. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. When he says in verse one, Lord, you have searched me and known me. He, the Lord has searched David's heart. The Lord knows David's heart. And then throughout this psalm, David reflects on the essence and the character of God. He speaks about his omniscience, the omniscience of God, that God knows all about him. He speaks about how God has created him. He's wonderfully and fearfully made. He speaks in this psalm about the sovereignty of God. He reflects on many parts of his essence. And after reflecting on who God is, the character of God, knowing what he can know about God in a very personal way. I love the way he ends the psalm. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So you see the conclusion that David comes to. He starts out by realizing that God does search his heart. But when he reflects on who God is, when he meditates on the character of God, it's like then he just invites God in to search his heart. Like it's open, Lord. Go ahead, search me and know me because that is how we're refined. We can't compartmentalize, that's a long word for me, (laughs) compartmentalize our heart apart from God or shield our heart from God. He is the one that opens us up and does surgery on our heart. And David is just inviting that surgery. And so in Psalm 131, he says, my heart is not proud. And I think this is a great statement of faith. You know, he also said in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast uh, spirit within me. So God has searched the heart of David but David also knows his own heart. And he's having a conversation with God about his heart. I find that like I I hadn't really thought about it until I had a relook at Psalm 131. And 
This was written thousands of years ago, right? How many people have read this psalm since the day that David wrote it? God decided to preserve this psalm for us and for millions of other believers who have lived before us and will live after us. And that brings me to this conclusion. This conversation that David had with God was important to God. The conversation that David had with the Lord about his heart was important enough to the Lord that he preserved it. So it brings me to the question, do we ever talk to God about our heart and the condition of our heart? I know we use 1 John 1, 9 a lot. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a very important verse in our spiritual growth. That's a very important principle to use. But that word confess is homologeo. It means to say the same thing or to agree with God. And so I wonder if we ever have a conversation that's not confessing our sin, but just homologeoing <laughs> with the Lord about where our heart is at any certain time. If he was interested in this conversation that David had with him, I think that conversation would also be important to God now if we had that conversation with him. So it's made me think lately, where isn't my heart at any particular time of the day, any particular trial that I might be going through? So David knows his heart. Now, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick who can know it? And that's a very startling verse, isn't it? But it's a very true verse. But that's not speaking about your heart. That's speaking about the heart you had before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's speaking of an unregenerate heart. And now we have, when we are born again, God gives us a new heart, Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and will be careful to observe my statutes. We have this new heart, this new regenerate heart. But with that heart comes challenges, doesn't it? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. And we know that our heart is a target of the enemy, a target of the enemy. He wants to destroy that peace and that quietness of heart that we want to have before the Lord. So David says, my heart is not proud. And I, I was very um, encouraged last night when my husband was teaching through James chapter one and chapter two, beautiful classes, but so much of it seemed to coincide with things, principles in Psalm 131. So he taught on pride last night. We know that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And David had every reason to be proud, didn't he? He was the youngest of eight sons, and yet he was the one chosen to be the next king of Israel above all of his brothers. He was the one that stood out amongst the armies of Israel as just a young, untrained warrior, and yet he was willing to face Goliath when all of the others would not. Remember that after he killed Goliath, the young women of Israel sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. Now, wouldn't you think that that would make a young man's heart proud? And yet David says, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. 
I want you to think about the relationship in the Bible between the heart and the eyes, because it comes up several times. The relationship between the heart and the eyes. In Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, she took from it and ate. What did she do first? First, she looked at the fruit and her heart was turned with desire to what she gazed upon. I wondered if she had been blind, if she would have eaten the fruit. There is a relationship between the eyes and the heart. Job said this, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I could not, that I will not gaze upon a virgin because he knew that whatever his eyes were gazing on, his heart's desire would turn to that thing. And this is why, ladies, we are told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside the sin and encumbrance that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us, what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. To fix our gaze. It means to turn away from something else and fix your gaze on something. We turn away from the world. We turn away from the things that might weary us or the things that might cause us to run off the track or to stumble in the race that we're running. And we fix our gaze on Jesus because what our eyes look upon, our heart desires. If we look upon Jesus, we have a greater desire in our heart to know him, to love him, and to serve him. So we look upon him, not a glance, but a gaze, a fixation. And then and only then can we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. So again, David says, my heart is not proud. He chooses a humble heart. Humility is, well, pride is the opposite of faith, isn't it? Pride is the opposite of faith. Pride says, I can do this on my own. I've got this. Just let me, let me go with it, Lord. I'm okay. I can do this. But humility says, no, I need you. Lord, I need you. In every part of my life, I need you. Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. We often quote, but the righteous man shall live by faith. But we forget the first part. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. So David was a man of humility. We should not think of ourselves higher than we ought to think. And he says, nor are my eyes haughty. And this speaks of arrogance. What is the difference between pride and arrogance? Well, pride is a sin in our heart. Arrogance is when we take that pride and we look down upon others. My eyes are not haughty or arrogant. Just to set yourself on high, to exalt yourself. It's the idea of raising up your own eyes to look down on someone else. There's one place where it's translated taller. I, <laughs> that's not going to apply to me. <laughs> Even if my eyes are haughty, I'm not taller. <laughs> but it's the idea of you're up here and everybody else is down there. My eyes are not haughty. It made me think of so many of the, the people that we have met across the world who just live in such 
low circumstances, such simple homes, such poor villages, and yet they serve the Lord with such humility and they serve the Lord with such joy. And most of you know that we've worked fairly extensively in a village in Papua New Guinea, and there's a lady there named Virginia. They say she's the strongest woman in the village, and I believe it, but she cooks for the Bible college students. And the last time we were there, she was cooking for like 100 people a day over a campfire. The, the other ladies would bring uh, groceries and you know things in from the fields, mostly yams and greens. They just eat a lot of yams there. And, but she would be cooking for these people over the fires. And these people eat a lot. Like, I mean, they eat piles of food. And I wanted to get a little video of Virginia just to give people a little peek into to life there. And she speaks some English, but she was showing me, I'm videoing, she's showing me what she's doing. And she said, and I'm, I'm just happy. I'm serving the Lord and I'm happy and fixing this food just makes me so happy. And like in, in two minutes, she said like the word happy every other sentence. She's just such a lowly, humble servant, just a precious thing to see. So Romans 12, 6 that we, says that we should be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. And we all have an opportunity in some place or time to do that. We need to have that same heart of David, a humble heart and eyes that are not haughty. And then he goes on to say in verse one, <clears throat> excuse me, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now I remind you again that this is the, the king of Israel. Even if he isn't on the throne yet, he's going to be the king of Israel. So he kind of has a lot to deal with, right? He has a lot of matters in his life. He has rule over the kingdom. He has rule over the people. He's a lawmaker. He's a warrior. He has to make a lot of decisions. And yet he says, I don't involve myself in great matters, nor in things too difficult for me. In other words, he doesn't go above his pay scale, we might say. He just sticks with the job that God has given to him. And I think that that's an amazing statement. When it says, I do not involve myself in great matters, that word involve, it means to walk about. In other words, I don't try walking out of where the path that God has for me is. I'm not going to go walk that path or that path or that path. I'm just going to walk the path that God has given to me. And it also has the idea of meddling. We don't use that word meddling much, but we do it quite a bit, don't we? <laughs> we might not say the word, but we do the action. We sometimes, I think, especially as women, can be a little bit of a busybody or a little bit of a meddler in other people's affairs. And David is saying, I don't do that. I don't worry or get involved in things that are out of my control. I don't get involved in things that do not concern me and things that are out of my control. This can be mentally, this can be emotionally. We don't need to be tied up over what we can't control because when we do, we lose that level, composed, quiet soul. Even in our relationship with God, sometimes we want to know more from him than he has to tell us. Sometimes we want to know more about our life than what he's ready to reveal to us at the time. He is a light to our path, and that means that as we take a step, he will show us the next step. 
And as we take a step, he will show us the next step. But we, we often laugh. There was a lady in our church back in Australia, and she said, you know, we just, she was a little bit in a huff towards my husband, and she said, we just need to know your five-year plan. <laughs> and he said, as soon as God gives me a five-year plan, I'll let you know. <laughs> So sometimes we want that from God, don't we? And sometimes we want that from other people when really it's none of our business. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So even with the Lord, we are on a need to know basis. And how can we walk by faith if we already know everything that's gonna happen and everything that God is going to do for us? We have to trust him. We have to walk by faith in the things that he has not yet revealed to us. So think of Sarah. She tried to fix some things that were out of her control, didn't she? Does a story come to mind? A woman named Hagar? Yes, because the Lord had promised Sarah a son, and Sarah was excited about that. Sarah was anxious for that, something that she had longed for, something that she and Abraham had longed for together. And she waited and she waited and she waited and then she meddled. And she called Abraham and said, why don't you take Hagar, go into her and we can have a son through her. How did that work for Sarah? Not very good. It only complicated issues in her life. There was a woman named Rebecca who was a beautiful young lady. The servant went to find Rebecca, went to find a wife for Isaac. Rebecca was willing to go, left her homeland, left her family, went to Isaac's tent. They were married and they loved each other, a beautiful love relationship. Until later, she didn't like the way God was dealing with Jacob and Esau, and she decided to meddle in the affair. And she coerced Jacob into basically deceiving and lying his father. How did that work for Rebecca? It didn't work very well. But then there's another lady in the Bible named Abigail. And you know that her husband was a fool. David had been out guarding Nabal's workers in the wilderness, in the fields. And when David asked for some food to feed his uh, warriors that were with him, Nabal refused. And David became very angry. Usually David was a patient man, very patient with Saul. But at this point, he became very angry and he was going to attack Nabal and all of Nabal's people. The servant came to Abigail and told her the situation and she immediately knew what to do. Was she meddling or was it ministry? It's a good question, isn't it? Because sometimes we can meddle and call it ministry and we're doing the wrong thing and we're interfering in things that are beyond our control or beyond the path that God has put us on. But sometimes we need to help people. We need to reach out. We need to give a word of encouragement. We need to give a word of correction. So how do we know when we're meddling or when it's ministry? Well, you know, David starts out by saying, oh Lord, my heart is not proud. He knew the condition of his heart. And that's what we need to know, ladies. We need to know where is our motive? Is our motive being a busybody? Is our motive meddling? Are we going to cause more problems rather than help? Or is our motive true before the Lord? 
Is our motive humble? Are we doing it for the edification and the encouragement of the person that we're with? Or are we doing it with some deceptive or deceitful attitude or goal? And you're the only one that can know that. And that's when you you say, Lord, search my heart. Let me know my heart so that I know the right thing to do. Because sometimes if we're a busy body and we meddle, we can bring upon ourselves and other people a lot of problems. So this takes discernment. You know, there are circles of control and circles of influence that we have. So here I am. What can I control? I can control myself. I can control the choices that I make, where I go, what I do. And I'm, I'm, this is really the only area I have to control, right? Now, the next person that is closest to me is my husband. And if I try to control him, it's not pretty. He's, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a guy guy, you know? He doesn't like that. And so I have to respect that. I can pray for him. I can encourage him. I can sometimes not correct so much, but, but maybe share thoughts that might turn his thinking around a little bit. Not that he needs that very often, but there's a time or two. <laughs> but I can't control him. He's not in my circle of control. And then I have grown children. Man, would I like to control some of them? <laughs> I mean, if God would say, you can go and meddle in their lives, I could straighten out a lot of things. <laughs> but that's not my sphere of influence, is it? Even with my grandchildren. We can encourage them. We can you know, give little tidbits of wisdom when it's um, appropriate. But we have to be careful, even with adult children, because a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they've left me, every single one of them. <laughs> Not that I would want them back in my spare bedroom at this point in my life. but So we have to know our heart. We have to understand the decisions that we can make or the ways that we can help other people and the ways where we can't. And then whatever is outside of our control, we just leave to the Lord, don't we? That's what we have to trust him with. That's where we have to go to prayer. Now, there are a whole lot of things happening in the world today that I would love to go down and fix. I would love to help Donald Trump build that wall. <laughs> but I can't. I can't. But I can pray about it. So the things that are outside of our control, that's where we have prayer. And that is a powerful thing, isn't it? God has given that to us for a reason because it's powerful and we need to use it. So we're through verse one. <laughs> oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I should, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests upon his mother. Surely is a declaration, it's like an oath a volitional decision to rest on God. I just talked about I'm the only one that can make choices for myself. So this is the choice that David has made. And so much of our Christian life is about choices, isn't it? Our choices are so important. So he has chose a comp chosen a composed and quiet soul. Composed and quiet. Moment by moment, day by day, year by year, this is our goal. 
David is stating this to God because it's, it's a high achievement spiritually, isn't it? To have a composed and quiet soul. And that word composed means to level, to adjust, to balance, like to compare in a scale. Now, I don't know what David had to balance. I don't know what David had to level. But I know that there's a balancing act for every woman in this room. We have to balance our life, don't we? We live in the world, but we're not of the world. How do we go about living in this world, seeing the things that we see, doing the things that we have to do, and not forgetting God? How do we go about living in this world and not clutching onto it, but letting go of it and clutching onto God? That's a balancing act. Even in our spiritual life, we need to study and worship like a Mary, but we need to work like a Martha, serving the Lord like a Martha. My husband spoke last night about faith without works is dead. That's a balancing act in itself. Because if all we do is study, we spend our hours at the desk and we pile up notebooks and we listen to classes and all of those things, we spend all our time there and we never have time to answer the phone when a friend needs encouragement. We never have time to visit in the hospital or bring a meal or anything like that. We're out of balance. So think about your life. Meditate on this for a while. Where do you need to level out your life? Even in relationships, in in marriage, in family, we need to make sure we spend the right amount of time with the right person where the need is. There's so many things that we need to level out, adjust. And so David did this. I can, I can only imagine that he, you know, he had a, a little bit of a hard upbringing, didn't he? He was the youngest one, you know, kind of shunned from the family, sent out to the fields, to the shepherd. Um, his, his brothers mocked him, accused him of being proud. He was chased by Saul for all of those years. And yet he was anointed the king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. So he would have had to level and balance what people thought of him and what God thought of him and not be too discouraged or full of shame or guilt by what people thought of him or his own sin with Bathsheba, but also not get too haughty or proud over what God thought of him. Leveling out and balancing your life. This is what the word composed means. And then he says, he quieted his soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. You know, families have stories and families have like little sayings between husband and wife and children. There's probably, if you have, if you have older children, you probably remember things they said when they were little, things that they did when they were little. And we kind of have these stories. Well, I have a story. <laughs> <laughs> So when my youngest son was about 15 or 16 months old, I was weaning him. And all of the, you know, he was weaned of everything except that last nighttime nursing, the one that puts them to sleep, right? So it was time to do that last one. So I was there. He, he wasn't in a crib. He was in a bed. And, and I was trying to settle him and, you know, cuddle him and calm him down. And he just wasn't having it because he wanted to nurse. I mean, every other night of his whole entire 15-month life, which must seem like a long time to a child, he had, had nursed, right? So he wasn't having it. Finally, he just got so mad at me, he just jumped down off the bed and he ran down the hall crying. I thought, okay. <laughs> I waited, and I waited about, 
three or four minutes, and all of a sudden, perfect silence. I thought, what's happened to Gavin? Is he like <laughs> climbed into the oven or something? No, no crying, no nothing. So I go out, we had like kind of a sunken living room, and he was laying with his head down and his feet up, and he had the cat around the neck. <laughs> and he was perfectly asleep, and the cat was just going. <laughs> so he, he was not weaned on the mother's breast yet. He was weaned off the mother's breast. But David says here, surely like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. And this is a beautiful statement because the child weaned on the mother's breast, it's like he doesn't need what the mother has, what has been given to him all of these days, but he still needs the mother. He still needs the mother. And this is a picture of our dependence and our rest on God. We don't need the things of the world. We don't need the blessings of the giver, but we need the giver. It doesn't matter about the gifts, but we need him, right? Whatever he does choose to give to us is wonderful. We accept it. We appreciate it. We accept it with gratefulness and thankfulness. But Lord, if I, if I never have another gift from you, I still need you. I still need to be leaning against the breast of God. So when you think of a toddler, let's say a, a little toddler, when you think of a toddler just cuddled up against his mother's breast, what are some words that you would use to describe that child? You can speak. <coughs> Peace. Peace. Peaceful. Precious. Yeah. What else? Content. That's a good one. Safe. Restful. These are all the images that this statement is giving to us. What David wrote, these are the images that it's giving to us um, of how our relationship with God should be. It's a picture of the believer who has been cut off from the attachment of the world and he's able to rest in the arms of God. And again, this is an unusual picture from a warrior, from a shepherd, from a king. Now, God is normally pictured as the heavenly father, isn't he? But he is not a sexual being. He's a spirit being. And there are other places in scripture where God is pictured as a, not as a woman, but with feminine characteristics. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Isaiah 66, 13, God says to Israel, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And here you see God displaying feminine characteristics. Jesus said to Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. One of the Hebrew words for God in the Old Testament is El Shaddai, and it's usually translated God Almighty. But the ancient Hebrew research center means that this means the mighty breast, the mighty breast. In other words, he is a God who is all sufficient that can provide for your needs, for your spiritual growth, a God that can hold you in his arms and comfort you. And we are in the midst of trying times. 
So I want you to think the next time your soul is tempted to get ruffled, like mine was when I forgot the enchiladas. <laughs> it's a good time to practice. It's a good time to practice on having that quiet soul because if you can't have a quiet soul when you're running with the footman, how are you going to have a quiet soul when you have to race against the horseman? And your ability, or your I should say your faith, your trust in God during times of trial is going to be a great testimony in the days ahead. If you are falling apart, how will you minister to those who need you? If you are falling apart, how will you witness to the unbeliever who in the time that he is in may begin to realize, I need to know God. I need to know the creator. So if we have a quiet and a composed soul during those times, it will be a great opportunity of witness for us. I have a story here that I want to read to you. You know, Sabina Wormbrandt lived back in Romania under the communist uh, persecution. Her husband, Richard, was uh, in prison for, I don't remember how long, a long, long time. But Sabrina also was put in prison for her faith. She says, we had among us, this is in prison, a young Christian lady. She knew by heart whole chapters from the Old Testament, but she also knew chapters six and seven from the book of Acts. And so we were under the bed and we read Acts chapter six, how Stephen stands before his enemies and his enemies looked at Stephen and they saw that his face was beautiful, so beautiful like the face of an angel. It's written here that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and with the wisdom from God. And when you are full with the wisdom of God and the Holy Spirit, no wonder what his face, no wonder why his face was beautiful like the face of an angel. While we finished this chapter and we started to speak about Stephen, one of the richest ladies of Romania, she was not a Christian. She was in prison because her husband had been a political leader in the country. So she listened with us about all these things about Stephen. And she said, I'd wonder about you Christians. You seem to be intelligent women, but how could you believe that Stephen, standing before his enemies, knowing that he would be put to death, how could you believe that his face could be so beautiful? In what beauty parlor could he have been in order to have a face like the face of an angel in such a crisis, in such critical moments before his death? A Christian lady answered, I am sorry for you. You do not know Jesus, the Son of God. But whenever Jesus comes in a heart, he never comes alone. He always comes with all of his riches. He comes with his angels. He comes with the glory of heaven. And so when you open your heart and Jesus comes in, your heart to be your Lord and Savior, he brings his beauty. And so Stephen could be beautiful like the angels. And while we spoke, the door opened and the communist guard came directly to the place where we were gathered under the bed and took us all out and gave us a hard beating. Bleeding, he threw us back into the prison cell. But we Christians, we knew that we had to pay that price to read the Bible and to pray. But we were afraid for this lady who was not a Christian. How will she react and what will she say? While we were thinking about these things, the first one who came to speak with me was this rich, rich lady who now was poor and hungry. Her face was smeared with blood and tears. She said, now I know 
The very fact that the communists are persecuting the Christians, the very fact that they have beaten us, only because we could speak about Jesus, this very fact for me is the best proof that your God is God indeed. And your Jesus will be my Jesus. He will be my Savior. And she did not know that now, her face smeared with blood and with tears, it was shining and it was beautiful like the face of an angel. A quiet and composed soul can be a wonderful testimony, a living testimony of the love and grace of Jesus Christ within us. And then David wraps up this Psalm, just as we need to wrap up class. He says, oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. And he says, he, he has this declaration of his heart before God and he wants to reach out to his countrymen. And he says, you too need to hope in the Lord because that's where our only hope is, isn't it? That's where our only hope is. Hope now, that means today, this moment, and forevermore. Never quit hoping. And hope in the Christian dictionary does not mean, well, I hope it happens. It means it's gonna happen. I know it's gonna happen because I know my God and my God is a God of hope. We can trust in him just like a little child leaning on the breast of his mother. And I'm beginning to see men out there and that scares me, so let's pray. <laughs> let's just close in prayer, ladies. Heavenly Father, you're the giver of good times. You're the giver of good words, strong words, faithful words. We thank you, Father, that we have forevermore with you and we have full assurance, Lord, that you are keeping us, you are strengthening us, you're protecting us, you are preparing us for the days ahead. And so we pray, Father, that we would just continually sit at your feet, be fed by your word, meditate on it. We pray, Father, that we would make these daily decisions to rest in you because you are the only one that we can rest in. You are the only one that we can find full and total peace in. Where else can we go? Only to you, Lord. So we pray, Father, that you would prepare us to be used in a mighty way today and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.